Welcome to the Millennium Counseling Center podcast, where hope is yours, it's time to soar. I'm your host, Oren Madison. It's time to rise above and celebrate healing, hope, and recovery with the Millennium Counseling Center team. Special thanks to Kaz Source, who helps us with the production of our podcast. If anybody needs any help or looking into podcasts, please reach out to Kaz Source at kazcontent.com. My name is Dr. Chantel Thomas, and welcome to Blind Spots, where we have conversations about the parts of our experience that we cannot see, but know are influencing our lives, our world, and our relationships with others. So I'm talking with Derek. Can you introduce yourself, Derek, and what you do? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. My mm. name is Derek Belsma. I am the executive director and one of the partners at Millennium Counseling Center in Chicago, Illinois. We are a group practice in downtown Chicago and have a number of different things we do, individual therapy, group therapy. We have an intensive program and a, a program that specializes with athletes. Yeah, which I just learned more about this morning because you were kind enough to come to me, which is incredibly generous considering the drive and it was raining cats and dogs this morning <laughs> yeah well i appreciate you having me you have a beautiful space here and it's always good to see you guys so thank I'm you glad, uh, you had me in so i was thinking back to the first time that we met each other and was it at the freud meets buddha conference in chicago or was it was it that weekend? It was either there or at the manor. It was, oh, no. Yeah. I think it's when you came to the manor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, I know, I saw you again at the Freud Meets. Yeah. Buddha Meets Freud. Freud Meets Buddha, whatever it's called. Whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You came to the manor. Mm-hmm. It's it's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank and you. I love Millennium Counseling. And I have had the fortune to talk to Oren on here, who's your partner mm-hmm. at um, Millennium. The two of y'all own the program. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And he's an amazing guy. He's pretty special. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why I love this podcast is it get, gives me an opportunity to get to know someone better. Like, I feel like I understood so much more about Oren after doing yeah. the two uh, sessions that we had together on here, which is really helpful because we sh- have shared clients and refer back and forth. So yeah, it's nice to get to know someone in a little different capacity. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I think I, I think we did like that panel discussion at, it was at Millennium, mm-hmm. right around the Me Too movement. And that was with Oren. Yeah. You were there that day. Yeah? I was there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 Well, lovely. Um, so you're such an interesting guy. I love people who come to the field, not as their first profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We like to, uh, we like to have those folks on our staff. Yeah. They seem to do really well and have just a good understanding and perspective of the world. And mm-hmm. not that, not that you can't have that without right. previous life experience, but I think the more diversity you have, then mm-hmm. gives you more of a ability to kind of see things and work through things and understand things, I guess. Totally. And I love the idea of bringing in um, perspective from other disciplines that informs how you think about the experience of learning to know someone mm-hmm. and, I was just speaking with someone yesterday, actually, about the fact that, like, I also did not start in this profession. I I did a circuitous path, Mm -hmm. 
And I was an English literature major in undergrad, and I thought I was going to go that route, maybe be a teacher, writer, and how invaluable that's been to me as a as a clinician. Mm-hmm. My experience with that, yeah. And then I worked in the restaurant industry for a really long time. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I bet you were good in that, though. That's a you need to be very personable to do well in the restaurant industry. It certainly industry. helps. Yeah. It helps with that. It helps with multitasking. I was actually just telling one of my staff members the other day that someone who's a, who was a really good waitress or like a food server, those skills translate really well to our clinical coaches at the manor because there's this piece of uh, customer service. Mm-hmm. There's being able to track multiple things at one time. There's the capacity to regulate in the face of a crisis, Yeah. how to accept responsibility for errors that aren't yours. Yeah, 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 you're right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, it's a good match. Yeah, totally. So when I meet people who have spent some time in the the restaurant industry, I'm always a little bit more curious. It's yeah, a good translate. It is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I worked in some restaurants and, and, uh, I worked as a bartender and as a server and my parents were really into making sure we worked and understood mm-hmm. that. So I started working at a young age. I got a paper out when I was 11 and basically it worked since, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the service industry in general is, mm-hmm. I think, really good for people. If you have the opportunity to work in that industry, I think it's good to learn about life and like, Exactly what you just said. Well, and it really helps to re, I mean, I remember, so I worked, I think in every single, I worked at Macaroni Grill when uh, I first opened uh, in California. Yeah. And uh, I started as a hostess and then I worked as a hostess, a busser, because I was bored of being a hostess. Yeah, I didn't yeah. like standing at the podium. I learned something about myself. But then I also worked as a busser and a food runner and then I was a waitress and then I worked as a bartender. Mm. I actually am amazed at how much of my experience working in that role, like influenced how I thought about how people, their relationship with alcohol. Yeah. 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 I agree with you. I think it's a, you know, you see people in an environment where they're just kind of being themselves and, and not guarded or, or, that's right. or maybe they are guarded, but they don't, they're not necessarily guarded to you, you know, maybe they're guarded yes. around the people they're with, but yes. they're, uh, they kind of let that down when they're, sitting at the bar or ordering drinks or having dinner. And I think yeah. That, that, yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's definitely a good way to understand people at, uh, overall and, and kind of the habits and different ways they kind of navigate through things. And, and well, on the culture of being a regular, mm-hmm. like is a fascinating thing, right? Yeah. Like this really deep desire for connection yeah, yeah. when people don't have those people in their lives, right? like yeah. how many people consider like their family, the people that work, in a restaurant. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. I mean, I can think of so many people that come to mind when I think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's uh well, there's a whole show cheers based on that, right? right. <laughs> I'm dating myself, but it's uh, no, there was an yes. entire, entire show based on that sole concept. Yeah. Going where everybody knows your name. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sense of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> so what, how about your early career experiences? And I'm just curious about that route for you and how you think it has shaped you as a clinician. You know, I grew up in a family that was very, uh, not 
it wasn't very business oriented. We mm. were, I, it was mostly helpers. My dad was a teacher and my mom was a therapist and my sister was always interested in being a nurse and, and now is. She's a pediatric oncology nurse. And so wow. I kind of, I didn't, and, and, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money growing up and things like that. My, you know, my parents got divorced and my mom was starting her career and my dad was a teacher. So mm. it was, uh, so I think that, when I got exposed to after I, I played soccer and then I played soccer for a little bit afterwards professionally and then I got into the staffing and recruiting business, which is really sales. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of, uh, selling the ability to recruit and staff other businesses. And so you're exposed to a lot of, a lot of different people. But I think that the, just the sales aspect of it, I was comfortable with just talking to people and kind of, you know, getting to know kind of just that interaction, but the, the pushing of things uh, and trying to get people to do things that they, that maybe they didn't want to do or didn't know what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was always a little bit uncomfortable with that. Uh, I think I got more comfortable with it as I, as I was in that business for a while. But I think mm-hmm. that the, you know, we saw in, in that business, it's, you know, you're help, you're interviewing a lot of people I spent a lot of my days just interviewing people that as prospective, uh, as prospective employees for companies that uh, was my client. And hmm. so I think it was in a lot of ways, uh, a really interesting transition because I, yeah. I really spent, uh, I spent all day, every day talking to people then. And now I spend all day, every day talking to people. <laughs> so I think the, the focus is different and uh-huh. the things that, you know, my piece of that, my, my kind of involvement in that is different, but, I think that just uh, learning to understand what motivates people, and and I think a big thing for me, and I I think this is something that I think about a lot and use in our practice a lot, is just the concept of perspective and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of how people look at things and what angle they take on them and how that can significantly change uh, your experience with something, you know. And I think some people kind of boil it down into optimist and pessimist and things like that but i think Mm. that's a little too simple Mm -hmm. and uh so i think that it's just the 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 just that concept of perspective is something that's really interesting to me and i think that uh the uh i i feel like my i think this is probably true for anybody who does what we do but i think that my i feel like all of the things that have happened to me in my life Mm -hmm. um good and bad uh have all been practice for you know it was all Mm -hmm. training it was like one big long school for ultimately being a therapist and working with people because you run across these people who have all these different backgrounds and things that are going on in their life. Yeah. And, and so I think that, uh, yeah, so I don't know if that answered the question properly, but that's, no, I think yeah. that the concept of perspective is something that's really interesting to me and kind of just how, how we look at things. And, 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 and the other thing about that is, is we can shift that. We have some control yeah. over that, right? Yeah. And we don't necessarily have a lot of control over how we feel about things, but how we look at things or how we think about something we do have some control over. And, uh, hmm. and I think that can ultimately affect the way we feel about things. If we, you know, if we shift our, our perspective and, and ultimately our actions that can affect the way we feel. Mm-hmm. But I think as human beings, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to, a lot of time and effort trying to change how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and that, 
I'm not sure that I've figured out somebody who can instantly, you know, Do yeah, that. right. Like, cause it, yeah. you know, if you could be happy whenever you wanted to be happy, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure we'd all just be happy all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like mm-hmm. I think we, if we figured that out, we'd be like, well, I don't want to be anything but happy. So hence, dis- uh, hence why they created Disneyland. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So interesting. So you mentioned playing sports professionally. Mm-hmm. Can you just say a little bit more about that time period in your life? I'm just so curious about it. Yeah, I mean, sports were always a big deal in my life. My dad was a college football player, and mm. I grew up in, as when I was younger, I played uh, baseball, basketball, and soccer, and I just happened to be, basketball was my favorite sport, but I was a... Uh, uh, a little guy, and mm. uh, which I'm, I'm not so much a little guy anymore. Yeah, but I was going to say, yeah, I don't see the little yeah. guy part. Yeah, <laughs> I had a growth spurt my freshman year in college. Yeah, when oh, I graduated. Really? Yeah, I graduated high school. I was like 5'9", 160, and then by the end of my freshman year, I was like almost 6'3", and two, oh you know, 205 or something. So, wow. yeah, I, uh, which really helped me in sports. But uh, No doubt. Yeah, so, yeah, I started off at a small liberal arts college, D3 college, and did well there and, and made All-American a couple of times and wanted to play Division One. so I transferred to University of Wisconsin in Madison mm. and played there with the ultimate goal of playing professionally. Uh, this was years ago before the MLS was around, which is now the professional league. So they mm. had uh, these different leagues. I actually got drafted to play indoor here in Milwaukee. Um, and it, to play indoor soccer. Indoor soccer, yeah. So they had professional indoor soccer. And the funny part about that was is I really wasn't very good at indoor soccer. <laughs> and after they drafted me, I talked to the general manager. And after a couple of weeks, he's like, you know, you're not really that good at indoor soccer. And I said, oh, yeah, I know. And he said, well, why didn't you tell us? And I said, you didn't ask me. You just asked me if you, if, if I would play soccer, if you guys paid me to do it. So, so I did. It's a different game when it's indoor. Completely different. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big guy who needs space, and I'm not an overly technical or skilled player. And so the indoor is is not built for somebody like me. So, uh, it's so more I like fine out, but, motor movements. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot, a lot of you know short, quick movements yep. and, and highly skilled, highly technical with the ball and things like that, all the things that I didn't have. And uh, so I think that I was able to use my size well, but I, I was much better fit outdoor. So I went to the, there was a, a professional team here in Milwaukee outdoor. I signed a contract with them and then uh, ultimately went out and played in Portland for a year as well. So, Portland, Oregon. Uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and it was good. I'm glad I did it. You know, it was a good way to spend your early twenties. And, and, uh, and then I also realized it wasn't going to be a career. It's, it's not the same thing as playing in the NFL or the NBA. We, we don't make that kind of Financially, money. Financially. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just a different lifestyle, but it was good. And they took care of us and we had housing and, and, you know, they, they, they made it so we could, it was a decent living and, and mm-hmm. it was a really good experience. I met some amazing people. And, I was going to say, um, and learned a lot about life. I think sports taught me a lot about life, about perseverance and about teamwork and, you know, kind of the cliches that you hear about sports, but I think it's true. And, uh, and learning how to fail, you know, I think that that's one of the things that sports does is, is helps you, helps you learn how to fail and, and then, um, and then keep going, you know, Hmm. At least for me. I've always been so fascinated with the concept of sports and sports teams because um, it seems to me that there's a certain intimacy between men that's allowable in sports that doesn't exist in any other space. And that's just my perspective. I'm curious if you've ever like thought about it in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yeah. think that there's, there's, there's things that I think kind of traditionally – men would, you know, kind of, uh, 
push back against, right? There's a, whether it's like being affectionate or, yeah. you know, you score a goal and you're hugging and yeah. you know, where you wouldn't, you know, I mean, I think that's changing a little these days, you know, it's not yeah. kind of the same as it was when I grew up where it was a little, it was a little more rigid with that. But I think that, yeah, I think it's around lots of things around affection, around, uh, you know, positive and negative feedback. You know, I think people are less guarded. They're more willing to kind of tell you how they feel, good and bad. Mm. Uh, and even just on a side note, just the whole uh, environment of a locker room yes. is is a whole nother subject, right? Because you've got yeah. you've got it's just a different level of vulnerability. People are you know walking around nude, and you know there's totally. just all this. And so I think that's a whole nother piece to it. Where oh, that's in, so interesting. Yeah, and with men, you know that. Uh, that it's just something you get used to. and uh, But, yeah, I've, I've got amazing friendships from the time I played. You know, something just occurred to me. So the only time I hear locker room reference, like, culturally is around the concept of locker room talk, which yeah. had a very interesting yeah. – took a very interesting yeah. turn during the Trump administration. That's right. And it, I've never thought about that kind of posturing as a compensation for the vulnerability that someone might feel in that environment. Mm-hmm. Like here you are completely exposed. Yeah. And I think you're dead right. I think that that's the, uh, you know, I I think that you're and you're right. There's, there's always been kind of this negative connotation with Mm -hmm. that, you know, or well, a combination of a, you know, being able to justify something um, mixed with a negative connotation. Right. Well, it's just just locker room talk. That's right. The whole misogynistic kind of objectification of women piece, right? Like it gets relegated into that space and somehow for some people that is more permissive. Yeah. But thinking about the vulnerability of being in that space and feeling really exposed around other men yeah. and wow. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting. And I think hmm. that there's there's also, you know, I think with teammates, there is a level of closeness that you have with people that you, particularly if you play with them for several years or things like that. If I look at my best friends in life. They're either people who I had played sports with or they're people that I know from recovery. Those are like the two areas of people that I have really close people. I've got other friends mingled in, but those are kind of the areas. It's not from, you know, just high school or just, yeah. you know, like it's it's those types of folks. So I think that there's a closeness that uh, that comes with. And it's, it doesn't have to be athletics. Any any type of team environment where you're kind of, you know, working hard together and winning together and losing together and, yeah. and, and all that, I think, is a, it's a special thing. And I think that with that allows people to go back to the locker room. I think that that closeness allows men to mm-hmm. be more comfortable in those environments. And, mm-hmm. and for some, that means that they show their true colors in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And for others, I think it, it shows that they're, uh, you know, kind of the type of person they are in a positive way. It just really depends on the, on the person, but you're right. There's posturing as well. And I, the other thing that comes to mind for me is kind of the closeness and intimacy and connections that come from people who've been in the service, like in the military, yeah. like that is the other, I I'm so curious about cultural circumstances that allow a permissiveness or supportive environment where really deep connections are considered safe in some way or essential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I got an opportunity to work with veterans for a bit when I was uh, working in San Diego during my graduate school program and then also here in Madison a little bit. And I've always been really fascinated by what kind of connections are permissible in that space mm-hmm. and spoken to so many soldiers who, when they came back home, that feeling of, well, there's this really difficult piece that they're navigating in battle 
that many of them wanted to go back, even though what they were experiencing was life-threatening and horrific, and they had a lot of conflict about what they were being asked to do. But the, the sense of isolation when they left their tribe, essentially, was so disorienting mm-hmm. that they would choose to go back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think that there is this, uh, you know, it, it's hard to find your group, right? And I think that one of the things, whether it's the military or, uh, uh, you know, my, I've got a 21-year-old daughter who wanted to play soccer in college, and she asked me what I thought, like, should she do it, should she not? And my advice was, I said, you know, here's what I think the best thing about that is, is that you walk in the first day and you've got 20 new friends, right? Mm-hmm. You walk in as a freshman in college. And I think that any group like that military the same way, mm-hmm. right? You may not, not, it's not that you're going to be close to everybody, mm-hmm. but you have a common experience that mm-hmm. you're immersed in. And it takes away uh, some of the awkwardness of trying to just meet people or find people that are similar to you. You're almost forced into that interaction um, mm-hmm. with those people because you're going to spend time with them. You can't yeah. run, right? right. You, can't, you can't leave unless you want to quit the team or leave the military. Right. So right. You're, you're around them. And, uh, and I think that that uh, ultimately creates the ability to have a space for that connection. Yeah. And then, you know, some people find it more than others, but uh, you know, generally I think I'm not surprised at what you said about the military. I think that yeah. uh, that's uh, that would make sense to me that they would yeah. be willing to go back. I think so many people are just looking for permission to have deep connections in life. I mean, I, I've talked to my husband a lot about like when we've moved locations, like trying to establish friendships or connections as an adult. Yeah. It's like actually like incredibly difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and like, as you're trying to establish a new connection with adult friends, there's something about it that almost feels like dating because you don't want to be too eager in that new relationship where you look like you're desperate. Yeah. And yet at the same time, like you're trying to read like what's okay in that. Is it okay if we invite them over again? Cause we just hung out with them last week. And do you think they're tired of hanging out with us? I mean, it's like all these funny little things, but that I just, for me, it's always been like, I just have a real desire for like, not just hanging out every once in a while, but like really developing like, Friendships that feel where you feel known enough to feel really safe. Yeah. I guess is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I was laughing because I think that <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm kind of a guy who puts everything out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't really like, uh, I don't, I don't play the game very well, I guess. So I think that, uh, you know, as we've met people as yeah. adults, you know, I yeah. think there's some people where I'll, you know, I'll be with them for a little bit and I'll be like, you're amazing. I, I want to spend more time with you. And then there's other people who are like, I don't know. I don't know that we connect very well. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we need to or do Or people this get again. a little freaked out, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to be very transparent too. Like yeah. I joke, we have friends in our neighborhood that we met because I met her at the time that I was pregnant with my second kid and she was also pregnant with a second kid and had a daughter that was the same age as my daughter. I mean, we met at the park in our neighborhood and we talked for, I think it was like 15 minutes. And then I asked for a phone number. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember at the time feeling like that was really forward, but we're not going to make friends if you don't like, you're not really upfront about, Hey, I'm looking for friends. Like, are you, you know, are you guys interested in hanging out again? But there is this thing that you go through as an adult in terms of making connections. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did you stay friends with that person? Yeah. They're our closest friends. For sure. Exactly. And our daughters are like best friends. Right. And 
All because you took that chance. Yeah, because you didn't worry about what, you know what I mean? I mean well, I, I did that, it, and then I was like, oh, gosh, I hope they don't think I'm creepy. But, yeah, I was willing to take the risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a good uh, a good lesson in life, right? <laughs> we have to be willing to take some risks, and you can't play safe all the time. I think that it, yeah. it'll leave you kind of mediocre, I think. Well, and I think I also struggled a little bit in the Midwest because the culture itself is not super effusive. Like it takes a little while to tell how people really feel about you Mm -hmm. because people are, they tend to be very, very nice and very polite, but it's hard to tell if people really like you because they're really just like very nice to everybody kind of. And it's hard to know where you really stand. Whereas like the environment I came in from Southern California, like you could figure out pretty quickly whether people yeah, yeah. were like down with you or whether they were feeling it or, you know, so it's, it's been an interesting adjustment for me just because my husband comes from the East coast and I come from the West coast and trying to get a gauge on whether or not people really like you yeah. is tricky here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, I'm a Midwest guy. I grew up in yeah. the Midwest, but I think I've lived around. I, I lived in California. I lived in Hawaii. I lived in, in Portland for a while. Yeah. And, and even on the East Coast. And you're right. There's definitely a, a thing about people in the Midwest where it's very, uh, you're nice, but, yes. uh, but not necessarily completely transparent uh, yeah. <laughs> about things. So I can see how coming from a different area. I think I, I was used to it growing up around it. So I kind of didn't expect anything different. Yeah. But, but you do see it even when you go to other, you know, if you go to the East Coast or the West Coast, right, there's a different level of directness that yes. uh, that people use sometimes in more of a positive and sometimes more of a negative way, yeah. depending on where you are. But I think that uh, I've always appreciated that because I like directness. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that when I've traveled to those areas and spent some time there, I think for some people from the Midwest, it's kind of shocking. Yes. And uh, I no doubt. I liked it. Like when I went yeah. to New York and people were just like, you know, really hardcore straight up with me. I was, I was like, I can, I can handle this place. This is perfect. It's a little reassuring because you're like, okay, I know where I stand. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I do think having a bit more of a direct approach doing therapy here in this region has been really interesting for me because I think it does kind of put people back a little bit, but I think there's some relief in it Mm -hmm. for some people, of course. I mean, it's not, it's not, doesn't work for everyone, Yeah, but I think it's why I was so drawn to doing this work here because I think in the recovery communities, there's a, you know, when you're dealing with life and death, essentially, Mm -hmm. You don't have really time to mess around with the niceties. It's like you have to get to the point pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, that there's a part of me that has always been really drawn to that because it's it's felt like there's a, a level of authenticity in those spaces sometimes that, I, that I've struggled to find in other spaces. Yeah, I think that's true. As you were saying that, I was kind of thinking about that because I would say that the people I work with would probably, would definitely say I'm very direct. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm ever accused of, (laughs) of walking around things, but I think one of the things is about that is that I think, I feel like, especially if you're talking about recovery, the, I'm so confident in, the idea that life will get better and that mm. there's a way out of this and that it doesn't mm. have to be the way that you think it is that, that it's not hard for me to be direct about that because I, I, 
you know, it's almost like I have this little secret and I'm sharing it with yeah. you and you get to decide whether you want to, whether you want to believe it or listen to it or, or yeah. follow it. But the, but the, at the end of the day, I'm not hoping it would work or, yeah. or you know, it's just, it, you know, I, I know that there's yeah. a better, a better direction. And, uh, and so I think it's easy to be direct when yeah. you're, when you're really sure of, not so much sure of myself, but sure of the message, I guess. Yeah. I love that you're saying it that way. And I actually was just thinking about that. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine who does couples therapy. And I was thinking, I have a similar sense of assuredness also around working with trauma. Like I know it will, if people stick with it, I know that it will get better. Mm -hmm. Like I feel really confident that we can support people in feeling more whole, more integrated, less shameful, less alienated. And for me, like the tracks of, of substance use and trauma are parallel on the train. I mean, there's so much overlap between the two and, and same with the addictive cycle. It's interesting because so many people, I think in the field instinctively, like stay away from addiction because I think there's a lot of fear that they're going to be manipulated they have a hard time making sense of the insidiousness of the cycle. It's easy for them to get frustrated or burnt out. And yet at the same time, I love that you articulated it in that way, because I think there's so much hope in this work. Mm -hmm. Like it's so easy to hold hope for someone because you know that something better is available to them. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's the, there, I guess that's the, you know, I think I said something similar to this before, mm-hmm. but I, that there's, there's, there's a path out of this. Yes. Right? And I know even for myself personally in my own life, I think that that's what I struggle with is, is that I, I, I started to doubt whether there's a path out. Right. Mm. And I started to doubt whether that that's, that that really is there. Is there really any way to get out of this? Right. Yeah. You're, you're almost too in too deep. And, yeah. uh, and I think it's one of the beautiful things about being, a human being is that, uh, and I, and I talk with people I work with about this, but I also use this in my own life is, is that I can wake up tomorrow and, and I can be whoever, it, you know, I, I could have been anything for 52 years and I can wake up tomorrow. And if I want to be something different, if I want to have been a liar for 52 years, if I want to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden be somebody who's overly you know, too honest, yeah. <laughs> then, then we can do that. And yes, we can't erase the first part. You can't erase the past, but yeah. we do have that ability to shift and it doesn't yeah. mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that it, you know, that it doesn't take a process, but it's possible. And I think yeah. just that, that feeling of the possibility of something different or of some hope or of a better life or being happier or not so much, you know, trauma or chaos or whatever those things are. Right. Yeah. I think is, is something that draws me to the work and, and allows me to feel good about, you know, essentially promising people that life will get better if they can have faith in, in, you know, a process or, or, yeah. or their own work, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's that this work makes space for transformation in a way that I think sometimes is harder to see when you're working um, more incrementally with other types of conditions. Mm -hmm. Like you know that something transformative can happen and it's not just, just noticeable difference. It's feels like a different person has shown up in the room to some extent Yeah, or is 
been granted permission to show up in the room or whatever. There's been an invitation that's been extended. And that, I think, for me, it's a big part of it's not magic because it's a lot of hard work, but it's like, it's really cool to see people transform. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When, when I first meet with somebody, my hope is, is that I can connect with them well enough and be, mm-hmm. and, and have them trust me enough mm-hmm. to just try, you know, yes. to just, to, to just try whatever, the, whatever we're talking about doing, just try. Mm-hmm. Because what I know is, is that if they do that, they will then establish what I always refer to as kind of personal historical data. So they will have then instead of me telling you your your life will get better, yeah. they will now be able to say, oh, life is better, right? Yeah. But in the beginning, they don't have that. They have All, to trust that yes, it's possible. Yes, they have to trust that it's possible. And I think that's the real challenge for the work that we do mm-hmm. is, and, and the people who tend to you know, do really well in this are the people that can connect with people immediately mm-hmm. and quickly and gain their trust. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, that's easy in to me, in my mind, mm-hmm. that's easy because I know that I'm, I'm not going to break that trust. I know that I'm not, I'm not selling them a bill of goods. I'm, I'm telling them something that if they give it the opportunity yeah. will ultimately be true. And so that makes it easier for me. And I think people read that. I think people sit down with you and they realize that you're yeah. like, it, you know, whether they believe me, they, they definitely think I believe me, <laughs> you know, they, they definitely think I, I like believe in what I'm saying, you know, so. Because there's a love there, there's a, they're sensing a level of authenticity. Yeah, there. yeah I think yeah. so. And yeah. Yeah. And just, which makes yeah. sense to me from like, just having always encountered you as just a very solid person, like self-assured and not needing to, you know, over promote anything. I mean, we just had a conversation with our staff and you, you said something that kind of stood out to me just in terms of, you know, you let your presence speak for itself. Like that's been my experience of you. Well, which I appreciate is, that. I don't it's know, true. I don't, I don't know about that, but yeah. I Are you not going to take in compliments, Derek? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess, I don't know. Maybe I'm not. I haven't thought about, I guess I just don't get very many. Oh, it's hard at the top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like when you're running an organization uh, that doesn't happen as much as me. Sometimes we like. Well, I appreciate it. That's no, it's saying. true. Yeah. yeah. Like just steady, like a steady presence and just a good person. Like you've always, yeah. Which is like really encouraging to have people doing this work that show up that way consistently. It's one thing to have like a good moment. Mm-hmm. And then it's another thing over time because now, I mean, we've known each other for close to five years, I think. Yeah. And you learn about a person through the work they do when you share clients. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, it's a really interesting way to build a relationship with someone is through clients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I like and respect you so much is because of exactly that is because mm. of, of working together and, and mm. you know, with common people and knowing kind of the effect that you had on them and the work that you've done and even just the way that you treated them and, mm. and, and the connection that you mm-hmm. made and all those things. Like, obviously, you know, I've met you and, and I, and I've always thought highly of you and just our interactions, mm-hmm. but I think there's a, another level to that when it mm-hmm. comes to seeing kind of how people work with people, especially in our, in our area uh, of work. And I think that that's where like a lot of the just respect comes in, right? It's just like a, a respect for somebody's overall, um, you know, I, I've always thought that as long as you're here, then um, you guys will be in, in very good shape. Mm. <laughs> so 
They better make sure you don't leave. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going anywhere. No, it's so cool though, because I think, yeah, I mean the respect piece and, and the thing that I've always really appreciated and about knowing that when we send folks to you, that there's no interest in leveraging off of their vulnerability. Like there's no desire to use kind of where they're vulnerable as a leverage point so much as desire to, to develop a safe connection. Mm -hmm. And what feels so important about that and making sure that you create a space that doesn't feel really judgmental is that I have a really strong sense from my time talking with Oren and also with you and I, and the folks that I've met at your clinic that people are going to be able to share about things that normally would never come into the therapy space, which to me, like my hunch about why so much of therapy is ineffective is people, there's a certain kind of darkness and vulnerability that's never actively invited into that relationship. Mm -hmm. And if it's, you know, you're not seeing all the edges, then there's something in the room that doesn't feel safe or permission is not giving it permission to show up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think a lot of that comes from this idea that there's, and, and I I think, well, I, I guess this, this kind of thought process that there's, there's, there's a, there's an issue and then there's a solution, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so this is what we do for, you know, Mm -hmm. if you've got depression, then you do this. And if you, Mm -hmm. and and I think that the people that I see that do really good work Mm -hmm. don't look at it that way. They, 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 it's so individualized for each person and they, and they take the whole, they take the context of the situation and they take the whole picture of what's going on. And then they, and then they get to know the person a little bit and realize that, uh, I think that, you know, kind of the, the idea of, you know, treating to diagnosis, right? Like yes. you're just, you're just taking a diagnosis and you're, you're deciding treatment based on just st- strictly that, yeah. um, you know, in some areas can be effective. I'm not sure that, that, uh, that works well for, for us, even, even as far as like people who, you know, are in, in the recovery community, who people who are, are more open to 12 step or, or mm-hmm. not open to 12 step mm-hmm. or, you know, I think that there's ways to do these things, but I think we have to, we have to identify why those things are helpful and why they're important. And can you, can you get those things from other areas? Mm-hmm. But just the idea that I'm not going to have a community, I'm not going to have a support system. I mean, you know, kind of the, the, the things that, are helpful and not to get all into 12 step, but I'm mm-hmm. using that as an example. But mm-hmm. I think these things that if, if you can identify why some particular solution is a good solution. And then if there's somebody who has a problem or, or an issue with that particular solution, then I think you just need to find why is that, why is that a good solution? And is there other ways to get those same positive things? Yeah. And, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about the creativity that there's a lot of different roads right. there. That's right. Right. And yeah. so anytime you get super invested in one particular road, you stop listening to what's happening in the room mm-hmm. and you people, what I've come to appreciate is unfortunately, I think there's so few spaces that people feel safe to really show up in. Yeah. They're just like, many people are very skillful at shifting into some type of performance mode mm-hmm. or, or, um, automatic pilot. So it looks like they're present. 
but they're not fully present, but they're just kind of going through the motions because they have figured out, Oh, this isn't a place where I can really talk about what, what actually matters to me. Right. So they just kind of shift into regulation and then, you know, you're just rolling tape. Right. Right. Which is, I mean, what a bummer. Yeah. (laughs) Cause the saddest part about that is that a lot of people have been therapy for years and they, they don't know how to make sense of why it isn't working. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah I agree. I they don't think. go. Maybe this person isn't reaching me. They go. I guess I'm kind of unhelpable, mm. and nothing is changing. Mm-hmm. So it's like the biggest risk I think for so many people when therapy isn't moving anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't. I mean, some people will say like, "Well, maybe I need a new, you know, a new fit." But I don't know if they give enough permission. They attribute enough permission to the modality or kind of the interaction effect. Because it is a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think also helping them understand kind of where they are in the process, right? I yeah. I think that with, you know, kind of with the typical type of person I work with in the beginning, we're, we're just stopping the, you know, we're, 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 we're stopping this. I always use this analogy where it's like a ship going down the Chicago river and you, your goal is to get to Lake Michigan. And mm-hmm. so you've got this giant barge on the Chicago river and, mm-hmm. and you figure out you're going in the wrong direction, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this big, heavy boat going in the wrong direction. So mm-hmm. the very, the first thing we have to do is we have to stop going in the wrong direction. right? Yeah. And then we have to turn it around. So we're facing in the right direction. And, yeah. then, and then we need to start heading in the right direction. And then eventually we'll pick up steam yeah. uh, and, and get to where we're going. But I think a lot of times people don't necessarily know where they are in that process. And so their yeah. expectation is, is that they're going to, you know, they, they think because they're, you know, addressing a situation that all of a sudden they're going to be at Lake Michigan. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, that, you know, part of that is helping people understand expectations and, and where they are in that whole process and mm. what's a win, right? Like mm. what, what is, what really is, is important at that time. And I think mm. that if you've had people who have been, you know, kind of have gotten, uh, they, they've, they've slowed down or gotten away from just all the, all the chaos and, and that, and they're heading in the right direction, then they can start to understand what that means. And it's more about personal growth and, yeah. and those types of things where in the beginning, it's just kind of stopping bad behaviors more than developing yeah. good behaviors or, or yeah. processes or perspectives. Yeah. Stopping the cycle of self-destruction. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So. Um, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about working with athletes, because I think this is super interesting. And I, um, you shared with our team that this is a program that, that y'all are doing at, at uh, Millennium. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something I'm passionate about. It. There was lots of things that I learned in, uh, in, in my years in sports and I am, I'm still a high school soccer coach. I coach high school in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, I, like, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of really good things I learned from sports and, and, and that were really helpful. And I think there's also some, some things that can be negative given the circumstances of the people. And I think that one of the messages that athletes get is, you know, we see a resistance for athletes to, to, to seek therapy, right? They're mm. less likely to seek therapy there. But what's amazing about it is if you... Can look, you say something about that? Like, what do you think that is? 
I mean, I think it's a, it's an old school. If you take a look at kind of how society has progressed when it comes to even just the idea of therapy, right? If you look at the difference between in 1990 and today, if you're talking about therapy, it's much more accepted. It's more open. It's more mm-hmm. valued. It's, you know, it's, it's more mainstream, mm-hmm. right? And I think, and I'm, and I know the numbers support that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of statistically, but I think that for a lot of athletes, and I think part of this has to do with that you, you play for a coach who's older who probably came out of that generation. Mm-hmm. So I think some of this is going to change as we move forward. I think the athletes, and we're seeing it when we're working with these college athletes, they are more, they're more educated on mental health. They're more mm-hmm. educated on, on, you know, they, they talk about it. They're more, you know, more open, less of a stigma. Uh, but I do think that the, the, the age old kind of message that you get from athletics is, it doesn't matter, men, women, whatever. It's it's mm-hmm. the same message is mm-hmm. is you like try harder, push through it, figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you're not winning, then you're not trying hard enough, you're not training hard enough, you're not, you know, you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that the mm-hmm. the thing about uh substance abuse, mental health is is that you know, it's not about not trying hard enough, right? The right. solution is not just try harder. And in yeah. fact, sometimes that, that moves you in the opposite direction. Right? Yeah. Like if you, and so I think that the, so the, the, and, and the other thing is for most of these people, this has worked this, this way of operating through life. And for me personally, mm-hmm. that always worked. Yeah. I was always anything I came up against, I could just outwork somebody, try harder, yeah. want it more, yeah. you know, want it be more competitive, yeah. whatever. And it didn't have to be sports I was talking about. It was mm-hmm. it was whatever it was. And and I think I learned a lot of really good lessons around that and I still use those today. I think I've used it in my career. I think I've used mm-hmm. it with clients. Mm-hmm. And and you know, that I'll keep persevering even when it seems like yeah. um, you know, maybe it's not as as hopeful, but I think uh Helping these athletes understand, first of all, that it's okay, that it's okay to, to, that these things are going on. And, and I think the other thing in sports is, and this is the thing, most people kind of relate therapy with athletes with sports psychologists. Yes. And we intentionally go a very different direction in the work that we do is, is that we are not concentrating on performance. That's the reason why we are working with people is not to make you a better athlete. Hmm. And we are working with you because we are trying to make you a healthy human being. And Hmm. I think that there's so much, if you look, even parents involvement these days with young athletes and things like there's so much focus on performance, right? That Hmm. that becomes the most important thing. And if the performance isn't following what you, what you want or the, or you're not winning or you're not doing well or whatever those things are, then that seems to be the focus, not only of the team and the coach and the family and the, but it ultimately becomes the focus of the kid. And you think that's getting more intense over time? I think that our, I think that the parents' involvement in kids these days, um, is, has some, when I was young, I think that <laughs> the way I looked at it is like my parents were the center and we as kids were kind of like satellites rotating around our parents. And and our mm-hmm. friends, this is the biggest example mm-hmm. I can use with this. Our friends as kids, my friends were my parents' friends' kids. Yes. Right? And yeah. now yeah. the kid is at the center or the yeah. kids are at the center and the parents yeah. and the family and everybody else kind of rotates around it, but they're kind of the center of attention, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, now what's funny is as a parent, my friends 
Mm-hmm. are my daughter's friends' parents, <laughs> you know? So it's like, like, who are you friends with? You're friends with, you know, people that you hang around with at school functions or who they play sports with or, or you know, that's kind of how you meet a lot of these people. And so to go back to your question, yeah, yeah I think that... Um, I think we needed a correction. I think mm-hmm. we were too far over on the other mm-hmm. other side. I think we overcorrected. Like adult centric yes. versus like yeah, shifting yeah. to yeah. prioritizing you know, kids. You, yeah. yeah, yeah. In the summertime, you know, you'd yeah. leave at seven a.m. on your bike yeah. when you're eight years old, right. and then they'd expect you home by nine right. at night. You know, it was, it was a different. Right. It was a different very way. permissive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hands off. Yeah, and yeah. now we track our kids. We know where they are at all yes. every minute with cell phones and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And we're very involved. If it, if they get a bad grade, then we're going to call the teacher and we're going to you know we're going to do all these things to yeah. to be involved and I, I there's this term right snowplow parents and not helicopter parents anymore it's snowplow parents snowplow yeah. parents where I they just go and clear that. everything out of the way so you don't have to deal with it you oh my to, gosh I yeah. haven't heard that yeah yeah I love it because it's it's kind of yeah it's kind of true it's but a it, great it, metaphor it is yeah because that's what happens you don't have to you huh. don't have to worry about the snow because I'll clear it out for you and then you get to drive on a nice clean road and, uh, and but like, I bet you there's expectations about what that road oh, what yeah. they look like on that road if for they're clearing sure. out all the variables that's right. A hundred percent. And that's yeah. what, and that's what it is. The and, pressure there. <clears throat> excuse me. And there's a, you know, we've got private tutors and we've got private coaches and we've got, you know, club teams. And so one of the things to your, you know, to your question was kind of club sports or, or kind of this pay to play model that we have for mm. most sports. Mm. You know, you have AAU basketball, you've got club soccer and club volleyball, mm-hmm. these things where there's, there's just a continued uh, kind of focus on performance. Mm. And I think that, that especially when you get to the college level, I think these kids start to feel like they're a commodity. I think they start to feel like they're, and, and they're, they're kind of told that they get a free, you're getting this, you're getting this free education. We're giving you this, you know, you're going to, and I think there's an expectation there. And I can say that as a player myself, I felt that, right. You know, I felt like I owed the school and, uh, and in a lot of ways I did, right. I got a great education and it was paid for. And, and that's, that was, um, I guess it all goes back to, is there, is that gotten worse? Yeah. I don't think so. I think the focus on performance has gotten worse. Well, it's a piece of it that you're speaking to that I hadn't really thought about because I think what we've encountered in working with people is like the way to decrease the likelihood of real intimacy is to make a relationship transactional. Mm -hmm. So do the connections that these kids are making, even with their environment or with their team or with their coach or whatever the case is, mm-hmm. what do those connections really feel like if they're always hinged on their performance? Mm-hmm. And like, what does it feel like to establish relationships with that always in the back of your mind? It's not really about you and like your essence. It's about what you produce. And so what does that do for your sense of self and your sense of worthiness? If that becomes the primary token of connection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And I think that that's, that is where we run into some mm. of this, uh, need mm. for, for, you know, to work with athletes and to make, make them under, you know, help them to understand that this, this type of help is available, that it's okay. And then what we're doing is we're partnering with, uh, with colleges, we're partnering with clubs. And, and so they are giving, they are not only, I mean, some of these colleges and is, which is, is super impressive. Uh, University of Illinois, Chicago for one of them is they are, they're funding it all. You know, so they're wow. as a, as a school, they're funding it, and they're they're seeing a need. 
their their student um, you know the counseling centers of all these colleges are overrun. They're There's, overrun, right? They're completely overrun. Yeah, they're eight weeks behind. So um, so we must be decreasing stigma. We are enhancing awareness and education about therapy. Yep. The people more than ever are manifesting this feeling of like, I can't handle this by myself. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And now what some of these schools in particular are starting to do is if you look at the resources available to students and then even take that further and say to their athletes, right, is they've got a personal trainer and they've got a tutor and they've got a nutritionist and they've got, they've got all these things. And for most places, some of the, some of the more advanced schools, I know University of Michigan has a really big staff for around mental health and there are certain schools that have, have this. Wisconsin, I know has a, has mm-hmm. a, has a, a, a pretty good support system there, but mm-hmm. I think that that is something that has lagged behind. And so we know this has lagged behind. We know that there's, you know, some people who are taking care of it, others who are, will be. But my prediction is, is that every major athletic department in within the next five years, every major athletic department will have a solution for the mental health treatment for their athletes, whether Mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, whether it's using somebody like us or whether it's hiring people internally or or however Mm -hmm. they, they deal with that. And, uh, and I think you're going to see these counseling departments across the board, are going to have to get larger and, and they're going to have to find a solution to, cause most schools, they provide a certain amount of counseling sessions for, you know, and so when these kids find out that it's actually, there's actually have access to it. Yeah. Um, now some of that's limited because they're so full. And as you know, in mm-hmm. this world that we live in, mm-hmm. uh, if somebody's ready to, to do some work and they have to wait eight weeks, they're not, uh, likelihood that we're ever going to see that person. Well, you might see him again, but it's not going to be an eight, eight weeks. weeks feels like an eternity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so much can happen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We might see him in two years. That's so right. And figure things out. So, but yeah, I love the athletic stuff. I think that the thing that I really try to focus on and, and I love our team that we have, we've got a woman named Sarah Meister, who's unbelievable. I don't think you've met her, but she's a, uh, yeah, she's a master's from Northwestern and just a, just an amazing therapist in person and was a great athlete. She was an all SEC volleyball player. And, and, you know, I think I mentioned before the people who we have working with these athletes are all former athletes. And so there's kind of a connection there, immediate credibility to go back to when we said having, allowing somebody to trust you right away. Yeah. Uh, that, that really who's helps. Who's been in yeah. those shoes. That, that, who's been in those shoes. But I think just not pulling away the focus away from performance. Because as you said, it's too transactional. Yeah. So, I mean, because I'm a person that tends to believe that therapy that is about like self-growth and evolution is always heading in the right direction. Do you sometimes encounter, and this is more, I'm trying to speak to the skeptic, Hmm. that giving athletes more therapy actually makes them worse athletes? Like, have you ever seen circumstances where if your goal is not on performance and your goal is on other things, like... Does it result that they actually decline in their performance at times? I think that athletes are so programmed to concentrate on performance yeah. that I could spend eight hours a day with an with a Division One athlete yeah. and try to try to decrease deprogram their, that. Yes, try to deprogram that, and I don't think I would be able. to You wouldn't make it down. Yes, I don't think I could make it down. Well, I think that's so ingrained. Yeah, to your point, because it's being drilled in so early on. Yep. Like I know my, you know, we have daughters, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old and I already feel an intensity around, I think my husband and I talk all the time, like, okay, so what sport are we going to get them into? 
and we have this debate because it does have a really big shaping impact. Mm -hmm. Like what you start to expose a kid to at a certain age and you think, okay, how do I hold my own desire for what I want them to be in to the side? Because what if it's not a natural fit and we'll do, we have to keep searching until we find a thing that, you know what I mean? Like that, it's just like a crazy, I feel an amazing intensity around it. And my oldest is six. And I'm sure some people would say, well, you're already missing your window. Like she should already have been doing X, Y, and Z, whatever the case is. It's like a whole generation of parents kind of collectively decided that they would reshape their children in a different way. Like I'm going to live out every fantasy I have through this kid. That's right. I mean, I guess that's the danger of, I mean, the risk of making it more child centric is it seems more child centric, but is it really just you living out your fantasy through your child? I mean, I know that's not a novel concept, but I'm just thinking around, you know, what is the thing that's driving it? You know, I mean, I think you're right. I think that the, the, you know, there's a piece of this where when we were young, we would try to, you know, emulate our parents or we would try to, you know, do better than our parents yeah. or, or whatever. And I think that has almost come in reverse now where the parents want the kids to be better than they were, right? Yes. Like they want, they like they, they weren't good That's enough right. or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and so they so badly want their kids to be good at that. Whereas before you kind mm. of had the kid looking up to the parent and saying, mm-hmm. I want to be like that. Yeah. And then now you've got the parent kind of looking down and say, well, I want you to be, you know, the, the, the goal is the same. They want yeah. you to be better. But I think that the amount of involvement that parents have on that um, across the board, I think, is is just more. And certainly, yes, I'm sure that I, I believe that there's some carrying out a fantasy about that. Mm-hmm. But I also think that people now and maybe this is true from when I don't know, because I was a kid. I can't I don't know how mm-hmm. parents were. But I think that there's like, you know, in this kind of society we live in where we're all trying to you know you're trying to look good whether it's through mm-hmm. you know kind of uh all the things that you know come up with well there's it. a leveling up with the social media exactly. presence yep. and yes. how you appear in that space absolutely right? yes mm-hmm. absolutely and i think that the amount of kind of street credibility you get from having a child who is good at something mm. is greater than it probably was mm-hmm. um, in years past. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's now kind of just another example of how you're doing well in life. Uh, it's an and, ego and, extension, yeah, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. And you're right. Social media is a big driver of that. You know, social media is a, a whole nother subject, of course, but it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a highlight film of life, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's all the great things about that are going on. And so everybody looks at that and says, wow, look at all these people's amazing lives. And then I've just got this regular life. I need to figure out a way to make that better. And maybe it's by having my kid be a star athlete. I always wondered how much of this was attributable to um, my parents' cultural background because my parents were born in South Africa. Mm. And so was my brother and sister. And it's funny to hear you say like, even in your generation here um, coming from America, it was parent centric still too. So there's definitely a generational thing that, that supersedes the cultural piece, but for me as a child, at least within my family system, where make sure I phrase this so it doesn't sound too strange, but my dad really drove home this idea for us that if you're suffering on some level or you're working hard or something creates suffering, it must be good on some level. Yeah. Like that was a that was definitely a message. Mm-hmm. And if you were enjoying yourself, 
and you were having fun, you were probably missing an opportunity to be better or to, to progress or whatever the case is. Right. So by that virtue, that generation of parents, at least within my very small sphere, had a high tolerance for watching their kids suffer. And because they weren't, they came from a survival generation that I don't think there was the the permissiveness around, there was not the luxury of emotional expression and exploration. Yeah. So I think many of their parents were just trying to survive mm-hmm. and or not die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's a whole generation of people that were raised with with parents that were so unattuned to their emotional world that now there's this compensation where I'm thinking about these snowplow parents they're so worried about their kids suffering or struggling that there's this pendulum swing mm-hmm. that if they're feeling discomfort, the only thing they can reference is their own history, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, can we still recognize like the value of your child being uncomfortable or the value of your child hurting even or not getting exactly what they want? And I can feel it in myself, even though I totally believe from a, as a therapeutic standpoint, like I'll move into the pain, the discomfort. I believe it creates great healing. As soon as I look at my kids, I can totally feel that reflex yeah. of how do I set them up? So I know they'll be okay no matter what. And like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's funny, right? When you were talking about that, it was like, uh, it was making all these things go around in my head. Mm-hmm. And one of those is, is that yes, like as a therapist, mm-hmm. I, I, I completely, there's all these things that I believe in, right? But that when it comes to my own, well, myself, but also my, you know, my belief about me and also kind of the way I was brought up. And then similarly, how many athletes are taught is like, I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, you know, like anything worthwhile in my life has been hard. Like, yeah. that's what I was thinking. As you were saying yeah. that you're like, you know, you have to have pain, you know, yeah. those types of things that I was, I was literally, yeah. cause I say it, you know, yes. I say it, I say it to my daughter, you know, I'm like, yeah. like you know, they're like, this is hard. Well, yeah, things that are, you know, anything worthwhile is going to be hard. And uh, I'm bored. So yeah, yeah. It's right? good to be bored. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just realized I have this yeah. own internal conflict, right? That yeah. it's like uh, where you see it and, and you're right with kids. Yeah. I mean, I think that you so badly want, want, everything to be good for kids just and uh, to be good yeah. for them. But I think what you said about the pendulum is exactly mm. right. I think we were way over mm-hmm. on one side. I think we overcorrected to the other mm-hmm. side. And my hope is, and I believe this will be true yeah. is that we'll come back and we'll It'll settle swing in the back, middle. Right. Like yeah, yeah, it, eventually yeah. the arcs aren't so great. That's right. right? And we'll settle in the middle, which is probably yeah. where we should be. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think are, are, are there any other kind of unique things that you've um, come to appreciate about working with like an athletic population. You know, one piece that you said is like, it really actually does help to have therapists who've been in that world, Mm -hmm. like understand it in that way. Mm -hmm. Are there other pieces that you think are, that stand out for you in terms of how to reach? I mean, I think one thing would be is that their outlets have generally been sports. Mm -hmm. Like that's that their, their way of dealing with anything has generally been sports Mm -hmm. because especially as you get to higher levels, right. Then you're talking about people who became specialized at a younger age and they were playing. And I I guess that's another difference these days is, you know, when I, as I I keep talking about like when I was a kid, but (laughs) it it was, you know, we played three sports. We had, we had basketball season in the winter. We had baseball season in the spring and we had soccer season in the fall. Now to your point, 
where you said your six-year-old mm-hmm. might be too late. To, it's too know, late. She's Mr. Window. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I think that, you know, parents, and I'm actually, I, my philosophy is really against this. I don't yeah. think you should specialize kids at a young age. I think you should have them play multiple things. Generalize. And I actually, yeah, I personally believe they will end up being a better athlete. Yeah. Um, and there's sense. actually some, some, some research. research about that. Yeah. But, uh, I think that, uh, the, you know, so their, their outlet has been since they were, 10, if mm-hmm. they're really good, if realistically, if they're going to go play division one or something mm-hmm. like that, so or even in college at all, mm-hmm. right. Or, or high level mm-hmm. club or whatever, or fight in varsity high school, mm-hmm. when they got to be 10 years old, they were year round in that sport, mm-hmm. right. They were now mm-hmm. you've got indoor, you've got outdoor, you've got yeah. club, you've got yeah. high school or, or middle school or whatever. Yeah. And so I think all of their outlets became around that their friendship yeah. groups, they're, they're like, when they're stressed, what do they do? They go for a run. They go. So yeah. we all have our ways of kind of getting these things out. And I think yeah. that the, you know, the coping mechanisms, so much of that is around sport and, yeah. or, or something to do with it. Right. Yeah. Not necessarily maybe just the sport, but I think that uh, showing them that there's other ways to do it, even if we're just doing some, you know, teaching them about meditation or teaching yeah. them. And, and I think like the differentiation between being meditation is not a way for you to be better. That's mm. not that the purpose is not. So a lot of times we'll talk to the, you know, these athletes about meditation and they'll say, Oh, you mean, um, like, uh, the mental imagery. And we'll say, no, no, mental imagery is, is, is a focus on trying to be able to understand, you know, kind of the proper way to do something so you can follow through with that. So your body yeah. understands what the goal is and yeah. then you can, you know, psychologically yeah. will connect to your performance. That's like an athlete who's visualizing Correct. their performance ahead of yes. time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so they will say, we'll be like, meditate. Oh yeah, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so I think just this idea that there's actually something there that is, is just set up to help you be able to feel better about these things that you can't really talk about or haven't been yeah. able to talk about or don't feel comfortable talking about. So I think it's just a big thing is just that this is a new solution mm-hmm. that, and, and, and actually what we see is, is when people start, you know, we've got more first time. I mean, we've got a lot of first time, uh, first time they've ever been to therapy. We've got sure. a lot of those folks in therapy naive. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Therapy naive. Mm-hmm. And they will be like, wow, like I can just come in and, and, and you, all you care about is trying to help me feel better. Like that's your only goal. You don't care how I play or what, you know, what, what time I have to go to prep. You just, you're, you're a hundred percent focused wow. on, on helping me. And, and I think the thing is, is that there's no, we don't have any vested interest. We don't have a vested interest Mm -hmm. in any outcome Mm -hmm. other just than just helping them. And I don't think they've ever had that before. Not with a coach, not with a parent, not with a, you know, so it's just new, you know? So I think it's beautiful. (laughs) It's really sweet. It almost brings me to tears to think of like, just like what it means to be in real connection without an agenda for them. Mm Mm-hmm. All these different groups have their own challenges, right? Yeah. And I've even had people say to me, like, well, the athletes, I mean, they already have everything. You know, like, why, why do you guys need to, you know, they've got a great life. I mean, they're, they're you know, right. they're, they're on, on scholarship. Paper. Yeah. Yes, there's challenges that come with wealth. There's challenges that, and I think that that's sometimes hard to see that those, all those things have their own unique challenges because they don't, they seem like they, these are, these are good things that, uh, so why is that a challenge? But at the end of the day, it's just different, right? It's a, it's a different challenge. It's, so. it's, it is not the most, not a group that necessarily garners a lot of empathy, right? Right. Yeah. In the same way. I mean, we work with folks who are high, high level professionals who 
have a high net worth at times. And that can really be looked down on. Like those people have everything. So why are you helping them? But the set of challenges, it's almost more insidious in some ways because no one can see it. And everybody projects onto them that, that you should just be so grateful and you're so lucky. And so many people fantasize about being in your shoes. It does bring to mind the whole thing that transpired around Simone Biles in the Olympics. And I'm sure that that's a big marker in the athletic world. Yeah. At least it seemed to me from the outside perspective. Yeah. And you know, the, 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 the pushback that she got for that was amazing to me in such a disappointing way uh, that, that people said things like, well, that's just selfish or right. she, she didn't care enough or right. she didn't it's like, like, it's just so, blowing. Yeah. Right? It's just like so ignorant and naive and, yeah. and hearing people who you kind of feel like should know better. Right. Right. And I, I think that that was because I felt like it was such a like, incredible selfless you know kind of just uh, courageous yeah beyond courageous courageous and and all those things you know i mean think about this this woman has spent her entire life training for that moment and your something is so off that you feel like you can't do this thing that you've been training for for you're actually scared for your safety yes yes, you can't like it's mind-blowing right that people would villainize yeah Cause just don't even mention the cascade of emotional implications that she had to navigate around feeling like a failure or not feeling enough or whatever the case is. And then you have this whole chorus of people attributing it to a certain kind of precious selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. And you know, the word I kept hearing in that, that really kind of got me angry was weak. Like we, you know, kind of this weakness. And, and I had a conversation with somebody, I think it was actually on a podcast, but it was, it was asked me a similar question, but Mm -hmm. it was, it was like, look, you, you cannot get to that level Mm -hmm. by being weak. (laughs) You know, that's, it's it's just just like, it's completely nonsensical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, And think of how bad it must be. Think of how how bad of a place she had to have been in that she would pull herself out of that. Like, you know, it's... I mean, the closest proxy that we have for superheroes are athletes probably in our culture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think to some extent actors and actresses kind of get lumped into that, but yeah. I think I think athletes even more so. Yeah, I think you're right. Like there's a fantasy about the superhero mm-hmm. and they do seem superhuman mm-hmm. in their capacity. Yeah. So... What does each person need to do to project onto that in order to feel okay Mm. about the world and how things are and how they exist? And so then you have that fantasy about, you know, the impenetrability of, you know, the USA for that matter, right? Like who we are as a nation and all these other things that, that in one moment gets shattered. Yeah. And then this horrific backlash, which is clearly about people's own process and their inability to tolerate or make space for the complexity of the human experience. I mean, it's just like mind blowing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) it's 
so wild. Yeah, you said a lot there that's interesting. I mean, even just about the country and, you mm-hmm. know, kind of that. And, and you were mm-hmm. talking about kind of superheroes. And I was thinking yeah. that the that there are these different things. There's like, there's, there's athletes and there's mm-hmm. wealth and there's, yeah. uh, and there's appearance, right? All mm-hmm. of those things are kind of have their own, yes. like, uh, thing that people, that they, that people in quotes look yeah. up to. Right. Yeah. And they, and I think that, or can uh, fantasize about yeah, can in fantasize terms about. of what that means. Right. right? And an right. athlete encompasses many of those at yeah. the same time. Yeah. There's like no accommodation for, the human underbelly of that and what has had to be, you know, sublimated, compartmentalized. So I like I found that documentary about Michael Jordan. Oh uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. I was riveted. Yeah. I'm assuming you watched it. Oh yeah. 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 I watched it. And I think that like I was riveted <laughs> and I'm not even a big basketball fan necessarily. I mean, I grew up with Michael Jordan. I totally remember, um, and Scottie Pippen, and, like, I remember that as a kid. But I wasn't, like, my family were not diehard athletes, and they weren't, like, big basketball fans or anything yeah. like that. But that documentary, and also the one about Tiger Woods, I mean, we could go on and on, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, But I'm so curious, like, what stood out for you in watching it or, like, what that was like for you? I mean, I think it's the part about being exceptional at sports that makes me wince a little. And, mm. and that is, is that being ultra competitive can help you get to yeah somewhere but it's there's a price to it right? there's a price there, to it. there's a price to that and so are you do you want to be michael jo- i mean you've heard about how people talked about him it wasn't they yeah. all respected him and they all yeah. thought he was good but uh he wasn't very it wasn't well necessarily liked. <laughs> easy to be in a relationship yeah. with it seemed yes, right yes he, yeah. he wasn't very well liked really i mean he no. was respected and people felt like he he made them in some ways you know like yes. he made their careers and made them yes. who they were but i i think that you know i i th- there's a price that goes with that and i think you know to go back to what we talked about before yeah. there's a price to go that goes with that as a parent is that you mm. know you uh, my daughter, uh, who's actually my stepdaughter, but I was so careful hmm. to not go out and put, and she was a good natural athlete. She was yeah. like, she had the natural ability. And I was so careful to not be that parent who was forcing her to go train and work out yeah. and all that stuff. Because I was so, I, because I didn't want that trade off. I did not want to, it wasn't important. And I think it probably because of what I do, but it, it was not important enough for me for her to be good at something that I was willing to give up having a good relationship with her. Mm, and, you know, it's like, so, <laughs> I mean, just like footnote there, like just take it in parents. Like it wasn't important enough for her to be good at something that I was willing to sacrifice having a good relationship with her. Oh my God. It's so good. She may, she may, uh, she may disagree and and say, "Well, we didn't get either." But uh, I'm just kidding. But she, yeah, I think that's that, so great. I mean, because you can fill in the blank with anything, oh, yeah. Right? right? Yeah, smart enough, you know, whatever intern you get. And, yeah, I think uh, I'll tell you something. That I think you would find interesting based mm-hmm. on some of these things is mm-hmm. that when I first started working with athletes, I, I was working with pro athletes mm-hmm. and a lot, a lot around substance abuse, mm-hmm. um, but usually around dual, both substance abuse and mental health. Yeah. And the thing that I found is, is that this was kind of at the core of it is because I had worked with some people who were pretty well known and pretty successful yeah. and, and I would talk to them about what kind of fed them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like what fed them and mm-hmm. it was, it was competition, it was money, it was attention, hmm. it was 
the uh, the game, right? Mm-hmm. And and then there was a lot of it that was about kind of attention from uh, you know, whoever their world of whoever they're attracted mm-hmm. to or attracted mm-hmm. from, right? So for uh, a couple of these guys were men who were mm-hmm. with this, so they would talk about the attention from women. Right. And then they get away from so all of a sudden they retire, right? Mm. They get away. And mm-hmm. so what happens to all those things? Mm. Like they make less money. Mm-hmm. They're not in the news anymore. Right. They're not playing anymore. They right. don't get to compete anymore. Right. They're not as, as you know, kind of revered. Wanted, revered. Yeah. Yes. They don't have those things. So then how do I fill that space? And I, and I always explained it to them. Like, it's like, if I took all those things that you just gave me as examples of what made up your life and you had a pie chart that was a hundred percent full and each, yeah. each piece had a little bit of these things, but you yeah. know, 25% was money, right. 20% was attention. And all yeah. of a sudden now all those things went to only fill. Now your entire pie was only 40% full, right? Yeah. Cause each of those things got smaller and smaller. Yeah. And so now you've got this giant 60% that yeah. you've got to fill and how Vacuum. are you going? Yes. And, and how do you yeah. fill that? Right. You fill yeah. that. Generally, uh, you know, what we know is, is that with alcohol, yes, with, with things that aren't healthy, with right? a very big bottle. Yeah, that's right. And that, yeah. and that was exactly right with unhealthy behaviors yeah. is what that, that vacuum was filled by numbing behaviors, right? Absolutely. Because you don't want to feel right. what that 60% of emptiness feels like, right. right? Yeah. We see this all the time with clients that we treat in retirement. Like it's a really significant transition point for these like self-made business people Mm -hmm. who've worked and driven their entire life. Yeah. And then they pull back from the role, the thing that they were going for the whole time to get to the place where they could, I mean, I think like, I think the fantasy starts out like I want to do so well that I can retire comfortably without that pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's a vacuum. It's wild. Yeah, I know. I, I thought about this the other day because I've always joked with my wife that I would yeah. probably work till I'm like 75 <laughs> because I love what I do. She jokes and says, yeah. as long as he can still sit in a chair, he'll be, he'll be seeing clients. But yeah. I think that I, I was thinking about this the other day because yeah. I was like, or is it that I don't, is it that I, I, I'm afraid to stop being busy? You know, yeah. is it that, is it that I, that I don't know how to do and, you know, I don't know how to stop, right? Yeah. I haven't ever done it in my life. And so, yeah. like, is it just that I, that I'm afraid of that? Like, is, yeah. it the, is that why? So I, I'm, this is something I'm currently thinking about. Next so morning, I love that you mentioned that. I love you mentioned it because that's like a, maybe a curiosity around a potential blind spot mm-hmm. is like, what might exist in that space if I slow that down? And it's a great awareness. I, I have a very similar concern, I think. Like, who am I if I'm not, if I'm not in motion in this way? Yeah. 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 I think in the, in our meeting earlier, several of you used one of my favorite words, which was just mm-hmm. curious. And you just mm-hmm. said it again. I just mm-hmm. love that word when it mm-hmm. comes to us as people and how we're navigating through life. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, so much value to the ability to be able to be open to yeah. being curious and willing yeah. to, to, you know, just say, well, maybe, you know, yeah. maybe it's possible. Well, it's all, it's the ultimate opponent to fear mm-hmm. is curiosity. Yeah. Because it's really hard to stay curious when you're in a fear process. And as long as you're in a curiosity process, it dampens so much of the fear. Yeah. Which I think Fear is just such a big part of what stops us from looking, growing, evolving, right? Like it's just, it's such a big part of it, It, it especially when it's unnamed, when you don't even know that that's what's operating behind the scenes all the time. 
I know. It's I have a great story for you around that. I uh when I was first in early recovery, mm-hmm. uh I was at, talking to some people and I don't know, complaining about some mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever I was mm-hmm. talking about. And mm-hmm. some some guy who I didn't know walks up to me and he handed me the the, the traders in Chicago used to have these cards that they mm-hmm. would have to give what mm-hmm. like financial traders, mm-hmm. they would like to submit an order. Yeah. And he walks up and he just hands me this card. Mm. He doesn't say work. He just hands me this card and he walks away. And I look at it and it just says on there, it says, uh, replace fear with faith. And Hmm. it was like this thing. And I I literally took it home and just like spent like hours thinking about it. I was like, and, and, you know, I was like, what is faith? Like, what is faith to me? Like, what was he saying? Was he saying religion? Was he saying, you know, and, and what I, what I came to the conclusion was, and I share this with a lot of people I work with is, is that it's just the, it's just the possibility that yeah. everything will be okay. Yes. And, and I think that's what faith is, or it, and maybe even going beyond the possibility, the probability, yeah. right. Yeah. Or, or whatever that is, but yeah. just that idea that like, cause fear is, is always like, this is the, what, what terrible thing is going to happen. It's not right? going to be okay. I mean, it's that's what gonna, fear that's right. is, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not going to be okay versus, mm-hmm. versus being okay. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the, one of the philosophies I live by is, mm-hmm this word of neutrality when mm-hmm. any single thing mm-hmm. happens in my life. I rarely get too upset these days about mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. because I don't believe we have the ability to judge mm-hmm. whether something is good or bad mm-hmm. when it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think we have to let it play out. And so mm-hmm. on a scale of one to 10, if a one is bad and a 10 mm-hmm. is good and mm-hmm. something happens, you know, your wife gets sick or something mm-hmm. happens like, so mm-hmm. this must be a one, right? This mm-hmm. has to be a one. Mm-hmm. And so, what I challenge myself to do, and I challenge the people I work with, I say, okay, you, that you might be right. It might be a one, mm. but it also might not be. Maybe, you know, maybe by getting sick, they found a tumor that saved her life or yeah. whatever. You never know what could happen, right? And so by getting to that neutral point until you mm. really know, the little secret that I don't tell people mm-hmm. is, is that uh, you don't really ever know because it's not right. really ever over. Right, right. right. right? It's so, still unfolding. Yes, it's still on. It's always still unfolding. Yeah. So you don't ever really get to just no. be totally negative. Right? That's right. <laughs> if you yeah. stick with the neutrality, but yeah. you don't have to tell yourself that or, or others. Oh my gosh, I love that. This has been amazing. Mm-hmm. What a fun it, conversation. It was a very fun conversation. Yeah, I'm yeah. so grateful for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. I love the work you guys do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got great respect for you as a, as a person and in the work you do and the, you know, the group that you've built and mm-hmm. what you guys do is, is incredible. And, uh, you know, you're very well respected, liked, and, uh, and I think everybody knows that you guys are extremely intelligent, really good at what you do. And ultimately the most important thing is, is that you absolutely care and are compassionate mm. and you just want so badly for, to help people. And I think that that's what I love about mm. the world I live in is mm. that, uh, there's a lot of those people and you're generally you're definitely one of them. And, uh, mm. I feel lucky to know you and appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, it's such a nice compliment. <laughs> and I could say every single of the same words to you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, Derek. Yeah, I appreciate you. it. Thank you for listening to the Millennium Counseling Center podcast, where hope is yours, it's time to soar. Continue along your journey of healing, hope, and recovery with us next week. 
If you want to learn more about mental health, recovery, or if you just need someone to talk to, send us a message on Instagram or fill out the contact form on our website at millenniumhope.com. We are here to talk.